invite you this morning to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue our summer of looking at different texts in the book of 1 Corinthians. We continue that today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the very beginning of that chapter. So if you've been with us throughout this summer, uh, as we've been looking at these texts in 1 Corinthians, there are a couple of things that we've talked about multiple times. If you remember this letter, right, this is a personal letter that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. Paul planted this church. Paul knows these people well. He's heard reports of things that were not going well there. And so much of what he's doing is addressing things that they need to be doing differently. There's some answers to some questions, but there's also uh, some clarity that Paul's giving them about the practices that they should be doing as a church. So we've already seen that one issue that, that Corinth struggled with was sin. That he's called them, that they would be God's holy people, right? That they would be the saints that are set apart and clearly noticeably different from the world around them. It was something that they had struggled with. We've already seen sin in another term. We saw on Father's Day, we looked at that text toward the end of the book where he called them to be watchful, to be on guard, to recognize that sin is harmful and that it's a terrible thing and that it's also a sneaky thing that we have to be constantly guarding ourselves against, constantly watching out for. So we spent two weeks, and we haven't been in 1 Corinthians that long, but two different weeks We've already seen him addressing how big of an issue sin is. Well, we also have spent part of two different weeks where Paul was talking to them about the importance of unity and caring for one another and looking like a body and looking like a family that loves each other and serves each other and cares for each other. And so today, the text that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 it really puts these two ideas together. It's the idea that sin is harmful and that sin is sneaky and sin is something that we have to be on guard against. But it's also the idea of not just me looking out for myself and dealing with sin. It's the idea of us doing that corporately. Us looking out for one another whenever it comes to the issue of sin. So if you would, look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll see how Paul addresses these two things together, the corporate nature of the church and the harmfulness of sin. Verse 1, he says, that It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For if a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Y'all would pray with me this morning. Father God, thank you again for the opportunity to open your word together as a body. Father, thank you for teaching us the things that we need to know. Lord, for calling us to be corrected in the areas that we need to be corrected. 
Father, I pray this morning that as I speak to the ears of this congregation, Father, that you speak to their hearts, that your spirit makes these things clear, and that in every way, Lord, we say to you as Samuel did, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what we see here is something that uh, it's not just a normal bit of conversation. It's not one of the texts that you sit around and talk about. It's not one of the texts that we uh, teach to our children in Bible drills. But it's nonetheless a very important text and a very important practice for us. But I tell you, if I'm being honest, when you read verse 5, especially if you were to read verse 5 alone, like, you know, sometimes... Uh, people will sit down and they'll just open their Bible to whatever page and they'll put their finger down and wherever they put their finger, they're going to read there. I don't recommend that as your normal practice for, for reading Scripture. But if somebody did that and they pointed at number five and they said, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord and they close their Bible, they might feel somewhat perplexed. Don't you think? It's a little bit of a different text. So what, is, what in the world is Paul talking about here? What in the world would compel Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, to write to a church that this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this, this person who is apparently a member of the church, this person that is part of your church, and I want you to deliver him to Satan so that in order that his soul might be saved for the day of the Lord. What is he talking about? And I believe that what he's clearly talking about here is the practice that we would call church discipline, or some speaking more formally might would call excommunication. Two different words, the same idea. So when, if I use those, I may use them interchangeably this morning. Church discipline or excommunication, or literally moving from communion, excommunication. But let's work through the text to see exactly what it is he's talking about here. So go back with me to verse 1. He says, It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So Paul here begins by addressing a specific individual in the church. Remember, he has intimate knowledge of this church. He is talked to people, he has heard what's going on in the church, and so he hears that there's an individual in the church who's living in clear and open sin that all of them, or at least most of them, would have been aware of, but that they have not addressed. Now here, the specific sin that this brother is dealing with, that this individual, let me say, is dealing with, is incest, but I don't think that we need to read this as that being the only time that we would take these sort of steps and these sort of measures. Now, we'll see from Jesus in Matthew 18 in just a little bit that this would go for any sin. And Paul himself, in verse 11, if you look down to the same chapter, verse 11, he begins to name others as well. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, so I think it's clear that the idea here, the specific issue in Corinth, 
was incest, but this isn't just for incest. This is when we are dealing with someone that calls himself a Christian, right? Bears the name of brother. Someone that calls himself a Christian. Someone that would be counted to us at one point as a church member, but that is living in open and clear rebellion and sin. When that happens, Paul tells us what we need to do. Verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And in that last part, we see this practice that we would call church discipline or excommunication laid out clearly. Paul says, when there's someone inside the church, someone who calls himself a Christian, professes faith in Christ, but shows clearly by their actions that they are not, we cannot allow them to continue to act and practice as if they are a Christian. And we see that same thing back there in verse 11. He says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if, and he names those sins. So point one this morning, Paul called on the church to exercise discipline. Specifically, when I say discipline, we're saying removing an individual from membership within the church. Paul said that that's what they should do. They had not done that, and so he, he, he rebukes the church for not having doing. Or, and you are arrogant, right, that they'd overlooked this, that they had made possibly excuses for this, to allow this person, you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn. So he's not only upset with this individual that's committing this sin. Paul's upset with the church as a body because they haven't addressed the fact that this individual living among them is in this sin. So the idea is that when a person who we would think is a Christian is living in ongoing habitual sin, that they should be removed from church membership. Now, why is that important? I want to give you a couple of quotes from some commentators I've read this week. Charles Hodge said this, A man professing to be a Christian professes to renounce all these sins. If he does not act consistently with his profession, he is not to be recognized as a Christian. Leon Morris said his point, talking about Paul, his point had been that they must not maintain intimate fellowship with anyone who calls himself a brother but denies his profession by the way he lives. So what we're saying here is that in the hypocritical nature of this individual, that there is inconsistency. If they say, I am a Christian, but their life says, I am not, that that has to be addressed. We can't allow someone to say, yes, I'm a member of Mount Zion Baptist Church. I'm a recognized Christian by that body of believers while being a drunkard or swindler or reviler or someone in sexual immorality, we cannot, in good faith, allow that to continue. And that's what Paul is laying out for us here. And this idea that, that our profession, right, what we say and what we do have to line up is not something that's new. This is not the only place that we see this in Scripture. I want to read to you. We have these for you so that you don't have to turn there, but you can write this down. 1 John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10 says this, 
No one who abides in Him, and that's talking about Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, right, John makes it very, very clear and plain as well for us as well that whenever we become one with Christ, when we are united with Christ through faith, whenever we are regenerate, right, whenever we're given a new heart, that all of a sudden we are not going to be willing to continue living in habitual sin. Now, I want to be clear because this text... 1 John chapter 3 is a text that's probably scared as many Christians as any text in the Bible because as a Christian you may read that and you say, well, well, I still sin. There are times that I still sin. Does this mean that I'm not a Christian? And, and John's not writing this to make you doubt your salvation, brothers and sisters. It's not the idea of those of us that are, are struggling against sin, that don't want to live in that sin, that are... That are using and trying to apply the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us to overcome sin, but sometimes fall short that he's talking about here. No, he's talking about people that are living in sin, that know that what they're doing is sinful, but who just simply refuse to give it up. They're saying, I choose this sin over obedience to Christ. And John and Paul say that when that is you, that you're not truly a Christian. You may say you're a Christian, you may have grown up at a church, you may have walked an aisle at some point, you may have been baptized. But if you profess faith in Christ but continue to joyfully choose to live in sin, you are not a Christian. And so what does that mean for us? That means that we have to make that clear to those individuals that you are not a Christian by telling them you're no longer a member of Mount Zion Baptist Church either. Jesus himself addresses this issue in Matthew chapter 18. Beginning in verse 15, he said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as someone that is unregenerate, as someone that is not a Christian. So the calling is clear, right? We see it from John. We see it from Jesus. We see it from Paul. The calling is clear. Somebody's a part of this church family. Somebody's, if you leave here one day and you're part of another church and there's somebody in that church and they're living in open and clear sin, you need to go to them. You need to make sure that they understand that that's sinful. You need to take others to go with you if they still don't repent. And if not, it needs to be discussed openly by the church. This would need 
in most instances, to be at a business meeting, a members meeting, if you're going to try and remove someone from membership, that's when you do it. But it needs to be taken to the whole church. And if this individual hears from his whole church, or from her whole church, what you are doing is sinful and you need to repent, and they still say, I do not care what you say, I'm going to keep doing this, then the action would be, well, then you're going to do that not as a member of this church body. So this is what I want to spend our last little bit of time looking at. Let's end by looking at this. Why is this important for the sinner? We see the practice, right? We see the call, but why? Why is it important for the sinner that we do this? And then why is it important for the church? The last two things. Why is it important for the sinner? Why is it important for the church? So look with me back at the text, verses 4 and 5. We see why this is important for the sinner. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, that idea of delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, here's what I'm going to give you this morning. I can't tell you the full depth of exactly what that means. There are a lot of different theories and we don't have time to go into them this morning. But it means at least this. At the very least, every one of those theories includes this, that it means removing them from membership. And that's for our basic purposes today what we're talking about. That delivering them to Satan is making clear to them that they are not part of this body. And so, why is it important that we would do that? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And it's pivotal that church discipline be seen this way. The idea, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the day that Christ returns, right, to gather all of His people to Him whenever time as we know it ends as the things of this earth are going to end. And it's saying that on that day, our desire is that this brother would have recognized his sinfulness that this brother would have recognized his lostness and that he would have repented of his sin and that he would have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope for any sinner, our hope for any lost person, whether they are a member of this church because we've counted them incorrectly as a member, or whether it's our neighbor or someone outside the church, our hope and prayer for all lost people is that by the time that Jesus returns, is that they will have repented of their sins and come in faith to Jesus Christ. Amen? Y'all agree with that? I mean, that's our hope. We want every lost person to be a saved person. That's our desire. And so, especially this is saying that there's someone who's among you who thinks that he's a Christian, who thinks that he's ready for the day of the Lord, but he's really not. Because his life and his actions and his fruit are showing that he's not a Christian, that we need to make sure that he recognizes that or that she recognizes that. We have to go to them. But we don't go to them and, and go about this process of church discipline quickly, and we don't go about it joyfully either. Brothers and sisters, this is something that should be done prayerfully and deliberately, right? Christ said, go to them yourself. And then go to them with a couple of others. And then take them to the church. And then the last resort. The hope is that through one of those meetings that this person will say, you know what, y'all are right. 
Now that, now that you have met with me and showed me this in Scripture, I realize my fault and I'm going to repent of this sin. That's the hope. But if that never happens, then you would remove them from membership. Again, not joyfully. No, Paul even says it in verse 2. He says, and, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Right? Whenever there's somebody that we would count as a Christian, as one of our brothers and sisters that's living in sin, it's not something we get excited about. When we have to tell somebody that you're no longer a member of this church, that's not something that we get excited about. No, it's like when you discipline your kids. Right? You give them every chance. I'm going to count to three. You say two, two and a half, two and three quarters. Because you don't want to have to bring this discipline. But you're willing to because you love them. If they will not listen, you're willing to reprimand them. You're willing to bring about momentary, short-lived pain in some way, so that down the road they won't have more issues. So that down the road they won't have more. And that's what we see here with this idea of, of church discipline. Why would we ever be willing to tell somebody that wants to be part of this church, you're not part of this church? Well, the reason is because we love them and because we care about them. And if their life says that they're lost, then we want them to know that they're lost so that before Jesus returns, they might actually come to be saved. Because imagine it on the other side. If there's someone who's part of this church, but they're not really a Christian, and we can see that, and we know that, and their actions make that clear, but we say, well, we're just going to let them keep being a church member. And we don't want it to be uncomfortable or awkward, so I'm not going to go talk to them about it. And we'll still let them take communion and the Lord's Supper when we do that. And look, we'll still let them serve on that committee, and we'll still... Let them teach that Sunday school class. And you know what? We'll still, we'll still hang out with them on the weekends and have them over for meals. And, and we'll still act like we're their best friend. And I'm not going to bring any of this up. What we're doing is we're setting them up to fail, are we not? If your kids never listen to authority, if they never mind you at all, they never do anything that you tell them to, and you don't correct them, what are you setting them up for when they go to school or when they get into the workforce? It's the same thing, brothers and sisters. If somebody thinks they're a Christian and we all act like they're a Christian, then the first time that they realize that they're not a Christian is probably going to be on the day that Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. The words in Scripture that hurt my heart, as many as any that I ever read, is whenever I think about possibly people that have sat in, not pews, in chairs beside us or beside me over the years, thinking they're a Christian, one day standing before Jesus and hearing, Depart from me, for I never knew you. But it's possible. And so that's why we'd be willing to do this. Point two, discipline is needed for the individual caught in sin. It's needed. It's not just may be helpful, it's needed, it's necessary, because it says to them, we do not believe your profession, because your life does not agree with your profession of faith. The last thing that I want us to see is why is this important for the church? We know it makes sense why it's important for the individual, why is it important for the church? Look back in the text, now verses 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good... Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I love biblical theology, and I would love to be able to show you all of the parallels in this, these few verses to the Exodus and the Passover, but we don't have time for that this morning. So let me just give you the short version, and maybe one day on a Wednesday night soon we can look at this more in depth. But what we see here is, is Paul is comparing sin in the church to leaven in a lump of bread. And so any of you that are bakers, you realize that with yeast, it doesn't take a whole lot put inside of a batch of dough to really permeate the whole deal. And what he's saying here is the same way in the church, that, that when there's sin in the church, and we say it's important for that individual that they recognize their sin. No, it's important for all of us because it's not going to affect just that one individual. Right? You put a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough and it's going to affect the entire batch of dough. And whenever there's some sin in the church that stays in the church, it's eventually going to affect all of us. And so he says we can't be okay with that. We can't be okay for that individual. We can't be okay with them continuing to sin while calling themselves a Christian. And for us as a church, we can't be okay with it. We can't just overlook it. We can't just act like it's not happening. No, we have to address it. We should want to address it. Because it's good for them, because it's good for us. And I love, again, Anthony Thistleton. He says this in his text, and I'm, I'm giving a paraphrase of his quote, but he says, We should also not be okay with sin in the church because we are God's bride and we are God's people, people made new by Christ. That being so, we care about the reputation of Christ, we care about the name of Christ, and that is harmed when there is sin in the body. Brothers and sisters, we should care about Christ so much. We should care about His reputation so much. We should care about the fact that He has died to set us free from sin, that we are not okay with sin. I'm not okay with it in my life, and I'm not okay with it in your life. And if you remember, that's what we said. We are a family. We live together. We worship together. We serve the Lord together. And I love you. And I pray that you love me. And I pray that you love me enough that if I was sinning and not recognize it, that you would come to me and tell me. And so I'm going to try to be better about doing the same for you. Point three, the last point, sin never affects just one person. So brothers and sisters, there are a couple of ways that I think we need to consider applying this text in our lives, a couple of different ways that we may need to consider responding to this text. The first one, I would just ask you this question, is this you? Are you the individual that's caught in sin? Are you a person who, maybe you're a member of Mount Zion, maybe you've been a member of Mount Zion for a long time and you've served in all the different ways that I just called a few minutes ago, but you recognize this morning that you have sin in your life that you've never given up that you have continued to choose over Christ, that you love that sin more than you love following Jesus. If that's you this morning, then the Scriptures are making clear that you're not really a Christian. You may have your name on this church roll, but you are not a Christian. 
and you need to address that. You need to come to faith in Christ. You need to fall before Him and repent and ask Him for forgiveness. Are you confronting sin? Are we confronting sin? I'll just be honest with you. We're not doing this well as well as we should. I've never been a member of a church that practiced church discipline as well as we should. Whenever I read the way that Paul talks about this, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Your boasting is not good. We don't boast about other people in our church. I can tell you this, there have been lots of times that I, I won't say you because I don't know you that well, but I'll say this, there are lots of times that I've been member, a member of a church with somebody else that I knew was doing something they shouldn't and I didn't go to them and address it. Brothers and sisters, are we doing what Paul calls this church to do? Because if he expected Corinth to do it, then we should expect Mount Zion to do it. Are you doing this? Are you addressing sin in the life of other believers? And I will be clear, because that's a question that comes up sometimes. This isn't for everybody. If there are people in your life that are not Christians, and they know they're not Christians, and they, they don't say they're Christians, then it's not that you're supposed to go to them and, and confront them with every sin that they're taking part in. We'll talk about this on Wednesday night next week. Not this week, but next week. But verses 9 through 13, I just want to read them quickly because that's where he makes that clear. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he's using world there for lost people. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our call is that we are to look out for one another. So if there's a Christian in your life, family, friend, church member, living in unrepentant sin, it's our job to go to them and make sure that they recognize it. But the last way I'd say that we should reply to this, that we should respond to this text, is by joy and excitement. You say, Brother Zach, that's not a real joyful text. You didn't deliver that in such a joyful way this morning. But I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, if it weren't for Christ, we would all still be stuck in sin. We would all still be living the way that we lived before we came to Christ. If He had not given us regenerate hearts, if He had not made us brand new people, if we were not born again because He shed His blood, we would all be sinners. We'd all be drunkards and swindlers and, and embezzlers and sexually immoral. But that'd be all of us. But praise the Lord, it's not. Amen? That's not me anymore. That's not you anymore. And that's exciting because we're reminded this morning that there's a way for people caught in sin to get out of it. And that way is called Jesus. He left heaven and He came to earth and He lived the perfect life. He never did any of those things. But He still died the death of somebody that had done all of those things. He paid the price for our sins. And He defeated sin. He broke the power of sin. So now when we have faith in Christ and we are Christians, we're free. We're free. We're celebrating freedom today, right? You can go shoot fireworks and grill hot dogs and hamburgers to celebrate living in, in a free country. But brothers and sisters, we celebrate right now not just a free country, but being free for eternity.
from the slavery of sin. And so we have a chance to celebrate. So this morning, we're going to have a time of response. I'm going to invite you to stand as we prepare for that. This morning, we're going to sing Just As I Am as we're reminded that that's how we came to Christ. Not that we had a whole bunch to offer to Him. Not that we had some resume of how good we were. But as we were as lost sinners, we came to Him, and in His blood we found salvation from all of our sins. If you're here this morning and you have questions about what it means to respond in faith, how to become a Christian, what it means to be a church member, come, I would love to talk to you about that for a moment, to set up a time that we can talk more. But if you're here this morning and you're just thankful that the Lord has set you free, pray that you would sing this morning as we have this hymn of response. Thank you.